Good morning, folks. I, too, want to, as a less-than-perfect dad, wish you a happy Father's Day on this special day. And I'm just so thankful that we can come and study God's Word and get the help and support that we need to be the kind of dads that God has called us to be. So, happy Father's Day. As followers of Jesus, we have a responsibility, a duty, actually, to share the gospel, the good news, with anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. But what is the gospel? The Apostle Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3. I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scripture said. He was seen and then the Apostle Paul names a number of eyewitnesses. But that is the gospel in a nutshell. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. And that's our message to a lost and dying world. And the only appropriate response to that message is to acknowledge that we are sinners. The scriptures tell us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 Turn from our sinful ways. That's repentance. Ask for forgiveness on the basis of what Jesus accomplished by dying for our sins. That was the price tag. And believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be. God dressed in human flesh did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. That's what an appropriate response would look like. According to John chapter 20, verse 31, states simply that we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But regardless... Our responsibility, our duty as individuals who claim to be followers of Jesus, those who are trusting Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, our duty is to share the message that others, so that others will have an opportunity to respond to him, to believe in him. So knowing that, When was the last time you shared the gospel with an unbelieving friend, family member, neighbor, workmate, playmate, colleague, schoolmate, or even a stranger? Bill Bright of Campus Crusade for Christ fame used to say successful witnessing is taking the initiative to share Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results up to God. Again, 
our responsibility is taking the initiative to share Christ. Again, hear the words of the Apostle Paul in his second letter to the Corinthian believers. This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone, a new life has begun. And all this is a gift from God, who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So, again, when was the last time God's appeal was made through you? We are individually and collectively Christ's ambassadors, his representatives to a lost and dying world. Now, trust me, my intention is not to in any way heap loads of guilt and shame on any of us this morning. That is not my intention. However, I do want to share a reminder that I discovered this week as I prepared for our continuing study in John chapter 8. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you, I invite you to turn there, John chapter 8. And please, if you're able, stand with me for the reading from God's word this morning, beginning at verse 21 of John chapter 8. It's a great passage of scripture. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. 
He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. May God help us to understand the reading of his word this morning. You may be seated. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you that because of Jesus' accomplishments and through faith, King David's 23rd Psalm can become our expression. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Father, use this passage from John chapter 8, from the pen of the Apostle John, as he was inspired by your spirit, to guide us in the paths of righteousness to equip us to live lives that are pleasing to you and further your plans and purposes. Indeed, may your will be done in and through our lives, both collectively and individually, as it is in heaven. For your glory, by your spirit, we ask these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Helping others to believe in Jesus requires verbal appeals. Evangelism, or sharing our faith, has fallen on hard times, it seems, in recent years. I remember the days when door knocking and four spiritual laws and bridges to life were common approaches to friends who didn't know Christ, even strangers. Today, it seems things have changed, and so the common quip is, preach the gospel, and when all else fails, use words. A pastor wrote the following description of a personal experience. This is his experience. The moment is indelibly etched in my memory. Lynn and I were on a sailing trip. After anchoring in the harbor for the night, we got into a conversation with some people who invited us to come over to their boat later to spend time socializing with them and a few of their friends. We accepted their invitation, and that night we got into our dinghy and motored over to their yacht. They were a very hospitable group of people. We enjoyed getting to know them. It soon became apparent that they were not believers. But during the course of our discussion, they asked what I did for a living. None of them seemed taken aback by the fact that I was a pastor of a church. They were just cordial and friendly, and we had a good time. It was when we were in the process of leaving. 
Lynn had already climbed down the ladder into the dinghy, and I was halfway down myself when one of the people who had invited us aboard leaned over and said, Say, Bill, before you leave, can you answer just one question? I've always wanted to ask a Christian what it means to become one. Can you tell us? There I was, one foot in the dinghy and one hand on their boat's railing, looking up at all these people standing there holding their pina coladas and waiting to see what I would say. I knew that I had their undivided attention for about 45 seconds to summarize what it means to become a real Christian. So, what if that was you? Hanging on the side of a boat, how would you respond? As Christ's ambassador, how would you summarize what it means to become a Christian in 45 seconds? In John chapter 8, Jesus is not hanging on the side of a boat off a ladder, staring up at the face, into the faces of some, well, at least slightly inebriated socialites. But he was in the city of Jerusalem, a participant in an annual festival of the booze or the festival of tabernacles. The seven days of celebration have now ended. Jesus, according to the first phrase of verse 21, was the one who initiated the conversation. Look at it. Then he, that's Jesus, said again to them. Who's the them? Let's work our way back through the passage. Verse 19. So they were saying to him. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, there it is. So Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisees. Remember, his official opposition. These are the same ones who in John chapter 5, verse 18, were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not breaking the Sabbath, not only breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Chapter 7, verse 1, confirms the, the same. The Jews were seeking to kill him. And you'll remember in the Gospel of John, John uses that label, the Jews, to speak specifically of these Pharisees or religious leaders, the religious bureaucrats of Judaism. He refers to them simply as the Jews. And look at the next verse in John chapter 8, verse 22. So the Jews were saying, I think that's significant. Here Jesus is not engaging a friendly, cordial group. 
these were his sworn enemies. The religious elite of the day who were committed to protecting Judaism at all costs, even to the point of eliminating this rogue young rabbi from Galilee, who, whose popularity was growing exponentially among the people. But it was Jesus who took the initiative to engage with his enemies. You know, I think it's safe to say that Jesus was prepared to make his appeal to anyone and everyone who would take the time to listen. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, we're reminded that he set an example that we are to follow in his steps. You may want to underline that word again in verse 21. Then he said again to them. Clearly, Jesus was repeating something that had been said earlier. This was not new information. In fact, turn back, just flip the page to John chapter 7 and notice verse 33. Therefore, Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. A similar message. Jesus was repeating himself. Important or essential or vital information is worth repeating. Again and again and again. Repeat, repeat, repeat. But the idea here in verse 25, or verse 21, is more than just repetition. Look down at verse 25. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? Jesus' message remained the same throughout his entire public ministry. Not the same identical words or illustrations. He used a variety of images and word pictures to communicate or to make his appeal to those who would take the time to listen. Remember Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that teacher of Israel. It was, you must be born again. And then the Samaritan woman, it was living water. In John chapter 6, it becomes, I am the bread of life. And in John chapter 8, he presents himself as the light of the world. The words and the images, they changed. But the underlying central message remained the same. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. From the beginning to the end, it was the same message. Repeat Repeat, repeat. From the beginning to the end, it was the same message. Verbal appeals that are consistent help people to believe in Jesus. I'm not suggesting that they need to be memorized or 
carbon copies of one another. But they need to be consistent. From one presentation to the next, from one presenter to the next, with the passing of time, regardless of who the audience is or what the circumstances may be, it must be, it is a repeatable message. And we are never to tire of telling it. Telling the same old, old story. Remember the hymn? Tell me the old, old story of unseen things above, of Jesus and his glory, of Jesus and his love. Then the chorus. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story. Tell me the old, old story of Jesus and his love. Verse 2, tell me the story slowly that I may take it in. That wonderful redemption. God's remedy for sin. Tell me the story often for I forget so soon the early dew of morning has passed away by noon. Consistent verbal appeals help people to believe in Jesus. In this engagement with the Pharisees, Jesus offers four explanations. Let's look at them as we make our way through this passage. Look again at verse 21. Then he said again to them, I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. Well, what is that? How would you describe that statement? Is that not a warning to be heeded? Notice, and you will die in your sin. It's singular. But then drop down to verse 24. You will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. Jesus mentions it twice. The singular in verse 21 is to identify that ultimate sin of unbelief, of rejecting Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, refusing to accept him as the way, the truth, and the life. One commentator explains it this way. The plural refers to the diverse and ugly forms of corruption that mushroom from the one sin of unbelief. Romans chapter 1, if we were to turn there, from verse 18 and onward, you will find a graphic description of some of the diverse and ugly forms of corruption that mushroom from this one sin of not acknowledging God, refusing to believe. We are told that God actually gives them over to our sinful appetites. And if we persist in our unbelief, our sin becomes increasingly ugly and perverse. 
And not only do our sinful appetites rule the lives of those who refuse to believe, but physical death becomes the prelude to our spiritual death. John chapter 5, verse 24 reads, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. But what about those who don't hear the word and or refuse to believe in the one who sent Jesus? Well, they don't pass out of death. They remain spiritually separated from God for all eternity. The place of punishment, torment, referred to as hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus' explanation included a warning to be heeded. Perhaps our appeals need to include some warnings. Warnings of the pending consequences that follow a refusal to believe in Jesus as the Christ, Son of God. Notice verse 22. So the Jews were saying, Surely he will not kill himself, will he, since he says, Where I am going, you cannot come. And he was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Here Jesus is defining reality. These Jews were absolutely convinced of their own righteousness. They were children of Abraham, passionate about obeying the law of Moses. In their self-righteousness, that gave them permission to suggest that Jesus was about to take his own life. And to understand that comment, hear the words of the first century historian Josephus as he explains the Jewish mindset. The souls of those whose hands have done violence to their own lives go to the darkest of Hades. And God their Father will visit the sins of these evildoers on their ancestors or descendants. So if Jesus were to take his own life, because of their righteousness, he would then be inaccessible. John MacArthur suggests that these Jews at this point were just mocking Jesus. I'm not sure. But earlier in John's account, in John chapter 7, those verses we read earlier, verse 33 and 34, where Jesus made a similar statement, 
the Jews understood that Jesus was planning to go out among the pagans, away from Israel, into the Gentile territory, and that way be inaccessible. But mocking him or not, I find it interesting that Jesus just plows ahead. He continues the conversation by painting a picture of reality. A reality to be accepted. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. The stark contrast. White, black. Light, dark. Up, down. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. And Jesus was speaking not of the physical world, but of the world, that evil world system fallen world system. Jesus is placing them on opposite ends of the continuum. He was saying that they represented everything that he was not. Jesus is God's representative. They were the representatives of God's fallen, broken, creation. Listen to the same reality as described by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. The mind set on the flesh is death. But letting the Spirit control our mind leads to life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Never did obey God's law, and it never will. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In fact, according to John chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. And yet, Jesus offers an entirely different description of those who had genuinely believed in him. Listen to how he prays in John chapter 17 for those who are genuine believers. I have manifested your name. He's speaking to God. I have manifested you, the Father's name, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. That's reality. There are two dimensions on opposite ends of that continuum. 
And when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we have feet in both dimensions. We remain in the world, but we are no longer of the world. It's a reality to be accepted. And a reality that apart from the Spirit of God will seem like utter foolishness. But with the Spirit of God, we're able to discern this spiritual reality. Verses 25 and 26. So they were saying to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, What have I been saying to you from the beginning? I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true, and the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. Jesus is here offering another contrast. You may want to circle that little word, but, halfway through verse 26. It separates what he would like to say from the message that he has been sent to deliver. Hear this same verse translated in the New Living Translation. I have much to say about you, much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. Jesus is here to deliver a message from the Father. And you and I, as genuine followers of Jesus Christ, have been commissioned with the same message. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Let me read it again in the New Living Translation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. We, like Jesus, have been entrusted with a message. A message from God to be delivered. Well, growing up in Troy, Ontario, I delivered newspapers for a number of years. It all begin, began when my older sister got us started with the Globe and Mail. And I think it was the only Globe and Mail route in the town of Petrolia because I can remember I looked after the east end and she looked after the west end of town. We didn't want to deliver the Sarnia Observer. That was a, an after-school delivery and that would certainly interfere with our extracurricular activities. So my older sister and my younger brother and I preferred early mornings. By 6 a.m. we were out the door 364 days a year. Eventually we all moved to the London Free Press where we could get much larger routes in localized areas. I think I delivered papers from grade four or five all the way through to the end of grade 13. Something like nine years of paper delivery. And then when our guys, as they grew and were in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, 
heavily involved in sports, we started again delivering papers to Star Phoenix. Six routes between all five of us. 6 a.m. deliveries. So needless to say, I know what it means to make deliveries. In some ways, delivering those newspapers is a lot like delivering this message from God. We delivered the paper to all kinds of homes. Anything from dumps to mansions. I didn't control what they did with their deliveries. And I didn't take it personally. I never altered the messages. Once delivered, my job was done. Jesus was sent to deliver a message from God. And he set an example. And we are to follow in his steps. We've been entrusted with a message from God to deliver to anyone and everyone who will take the time to listen. Verse 27 to 29. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about his father. So Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do, do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he sent me, and he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. These verses disclose a very intimate relationship between the Father and Jesus. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He. The Jews standing in front of Jesus would surely have thought that Jesus was making a claim that in some future days He would experience some kind of exaltation. And it is true that there would be a future exaltation, but there is a double meaning here. Similar to his statement back in John chapter 3 and verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up. Jesus was once again making a veiled reference to his pending crucifixion. D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, provides this commentary. They, meaning the Pharisees, were wrong to think he will achieve his departure by killing himself. Nevertheless, they are profoundly right, for he goes away by voluntarily laying down his life. John chapter 10, verse 18, which reads, No one is taken out away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Not suicide. Not suicide. But submission to his Father's will. 
in a violent death meted out by his enemies. Ironically, that lifting up on the cross, although humiliating and excruciatingly painful, was a step towards his ultimate exaltation. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 11, speak of that future exaltation. Being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That little expression, I am he, is also found in verse 24. And then again in verse 28. It's another of Jesus' claims to be equal with God. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, this phrase is found repeatedly in Isaiah's prophecy. In chapters 40 through 55, God is continually referring to himself again and again as, I am he. Jesus applies that declaration to himself here in John chapter 8. He was claiming to be truly God and truly man. God dressed in human flesh. Or in the words of John Piper, the word became flesh and pitched its tent in our backyard. The rest of verse 28 and verse 29 describes the wonderfully intimate relationship that Jesus enjoyed with the Father. I do nothing on my own initiative. I speak what he taught me to say. He sent me, but is with me. I am never alone. I do the things that please him. These verses present a claim to be believed. So there you have it. Four explanations or elaborations or clarifications that were part of Jesus' appeal to those who opposed him, his enemies. A warning to be heeded, a reality to be accepted, a message to be delivered, and a claim to be believed. Comprehensible, verbal appeals help others to believe in Jesus. Remember that earlier illustration, we left Bill hanging on the side of a boat, halfway between the yacht and his dinghy, looking up into the, faithful, into the faces of a handful of unbelievers, waiting for his answer to their question about how one becomes a true Christian. Here's how he responded. Well, you first have to realize the difference between religion and Christianity. Religion is spelled D-O. 
because it consists of things people do to try to somehow gain God's forgiveness or favor. But the problem is that you never know when you have done enough. It's like the salesman who knows he must meet a quota but is never, know, never told what the quota is. You can never be sure that you have actually done enough. Worse yet, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we can never do enough. We always fall short of God's perfect standard. But thankfully, Christianity is spelled differently. D-O-N-E. Which means that what we could never do for ourselves, Christ has already done for us. He lived a perfect life we could never live, and he willingly died on the cross to pay the penalty we owed for the wrongs that we have done. To become a genuine Christian is to humble, humbly receive God's gift of forgiveness and to commit to following his leadership. When we do that, he adopts us into his family and begins to change us from the inside out. It's a great gospel presentation. Simple, and yet it's that difficult. Verbal appeals that are consistent and comprehensible help others to believe in Jesus. It is our privilege to be able to take the initiative and allow God to make his appeal through you and through me as we interact with a lost and dying world. Let's pray. Father, you have made the true light that enables every man shine in our hearts so that we can know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus. You have reconciled us to yourself through him. Thank you. And you have entrusted to us, committed to us, this message of reconciliation. Give us the courage and strength. Keep us from fear and discouragement as we appeal to those who have not yet believed. Make your appeal through us, Lord. Help us to help others to believe in Jesus. By the power of your Spirit, for your glory, we ask these things to be so in Jesus' name. Amen.